Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled Yogi Ram Sarat Kumar, The Godchild, Teruvan Amalai, and was given by Kaylor Wadlington on January 30th, 2021, via Zoom. Kaylor is a doctor of oriental medicine, a skilled acupuncturist, and author of a book which has the same title as this talk. He has also written the booklet, The Yogi Ram Sarat Kumar Garland of Praises. After a few words of introduction, Kaler speaks about his spiritual journey and his experience in the company of the Indian spiritual master. I'm not even sure, Taylor, exactly how you stumbled across Yogi Ram Sarat Kumar. I mean, maybe you'll speak to that, and whatever feels right. In the book that Yogi Ram Sarat Kumar asked you to write about him, published in 1972, Oh, yes. You note that he left the fiscal company of Papa Ramdas in 1952, and that it took him seven years wandering around India to get to Tiruvannamalai when it might have taken him seven hours. And you quote him, emancipation was not the end for this beggar, rather it was the beginning for him. And you also quote him as having said, I am infinite, and so are you, and so is everyone, my friend. But there is a veil. There is a veil. Do you follow me? You can only see an infinitesimal part of me. Just like when a man stands on the seashore and looks out over the great ocean, he sees only a fraction of that vast ocean. Similarly, everyone can only see a small part of me. The whole cosmos is but an infinitesimal part of the real man. But how can a man see the whole cosmos? Kaylor, would you talk to us about anything that you think would be useful? Any recollections of the Leelas that you witnessed or any of the interactions that you had with him when you spent so much time with him in Tiruvannamalai in the 70s? That would be my pleasure. Thank you. Unfortunately, we aren't all gathered in the same room together where we could get to know one another personally. Sadly, I see all of these faces in front of me, and really, I just want you all to talk about you all. But uh, I guess today I am called. So uh, those were some very salient quotes. Just a few months ago, Ma Devaki asked me about one of those quotes that in my book was Yogi Ram Kumar suggesting that his awakening was still growing or increasingly more elevated or revealed, but that isn't what he was saying on that occasion. We had been sitting out in the fields because during the day, Tiruvannamalai town was very loud and crowded. We would get up at sunrise in the bazaar and walk our way out into the fields 
on the outskirts of town where we would be undisturbed. And on this occasion, we were comfortably seated on some rocks and we stood up and were looking out over Tiruvannamalai towards the mountain. And he, I don't know what it was that I asked him, but he was telling me that it wasn't, not that it was his realization that was expanding, but that from the moment of his realization that his body was undergoing changes, that transformation of the body of an enlightened soul and the capacity to do his father's work, to be a vessel and to have instrumental faculties and powers to do that work continued to grow. That the vehicles or vahanam of the enlightened being, the vehicles continue to transform. And he used the word transformation. He said, even at the cellular level, that transformation continued. So that's what he was saying in that place in the book. I should say that this being 2021, I went to India in 1970, in the springtime of 1970. And I met Yogi Ram Kumar just about a month after I arrived. I had, in 1969, during the Vietnam War, this was war through and through in myself. The Vietnam War was raging. My household, the home I was growing up in, was at war, total uh, confusion and anguish and loss and depression and I was very confused. I was in college and doing poorly during summer break from my first year in college. <laughs> Following the noble example of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, I dropped acid. And after hours, so eight or 10 hours of being on this chemical journey, even, even, um, Three minutes in that state where time is so compressed was like, could have been equivalent to days in the waking state. After eight or 10 hours, it was like months of consciousness evolution. I had been journeying through the cosmos much of that time. All of my senses were merged. I was seeing with my skin. I was hearing with my eyes. I was feeling the resonances of higher realms. It was very blissful and enlightening. And just days after that, and not really knowing what to think about it, up to that moment, I had just been a sort of uh, just focused on athletics. I was a hockey player, very confused hockey player. And 
Um, within days of that experience, one of my high school friends, uh, who I happened to be um, spending time with that summer away from college, handed me this the autobiography of a yogi. I realized at that very moment that this was a sacred text, that this was the universe speaking to me, that what I had just witnessed was known. These higher realms and higher resonances and expanded sensory faculties were all known in the yoga traditions of the Far East. And I uh, went on to read Sri Aurobindo and the Adventure in Consciousness and the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna um, and also quite a wide range of dialogues with Ramana Maharshi and decided I was going to India as soon as I could to find a teacher, guru. Well, before I left to go to India, this was in January of 1970, I was meditating my brains out. I was just sure that if I meditated long and hard and didn't waste any time, that I could get enlightened fast. This was the true American way, right? Uh, any red-blooded 20-year-old, or at that time still 19 years old, would have that perspective on things. And during my long hours of meditation into the night, I was graced with huge, huge samadhi awakenings. But after them, I couldn't my, so to speak, my head had exploded and um, some of those chakras would not close. And I was in real desperate straits. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't think. I couldn't relax. I was just being flooded with Shakti. Anytime I would focus on anything, I would get colossal headaches as the chi or the energy mounted. So when I got to India, I was very desperate to find help. I went to several of the teachers, the still living disciples of Ramana Maharshi, who were minor teachers in the area, but they just said I was, I was asking, who am I wrong? <laughs> I needed to ask, who am I differently or something? They really didn't understand. It was only overhearing a, a, the rumor of a yogi who wandered in the area, that gave me hope. Nobody knew his name, but some French uh, and Swiss residents at the ashram had met him. And uh, I talked to them. I said, I'm really, I really have to find help. I need to meet this person. I think he perhaps could help. And they said, well, we don't know how to find him. He will show up if that's needed. And the very next morning, this French woman was shopping for veggies in the market, and he met her there. And she explained that um, I had this strong longing to meet him, and we did meet. We met the very next day in the temple 
And he proceeded late, late, late into the morning hours. Uh, we finally had some private time together and he put his hand on my head and completely cured my headaches. He said they would come back and they did. And we met again and he cleared them for the final time, my headaches. Well, I was looking for that kind of master, but little did I know. I mean, I was on this path where I wanted to find a guru who would lead me, teach me meditation, teach me a working philosophy, uh, put me on the path and guide me. I really loved <laughs> the image surrounding Sri Aurobindo and Ramana Maharshi, but it didn't take me long to figure out that Yogi Ram Surat Kumar was not the guru I was looking for. I was looking for that sage sitting on a rug, a tiger skin rug or something, who would teach me. And I wanted to adventure into those higher worlds. And I wanted to know the details of Tantra and Yantra and Mantra. I wanted to become a yogi of some accomplishment. Those were my ambitions. <laughs> but the first thing that happened, of course, having already blown my brains out meditating, was for him to tell me I had to stop meditating, which was my path. I was so determined to follow the path of meditation and to find my way. But now, even at the very onset of my relationship with him, that path, which I have to say was sort of my hope of determining my own destiny, my own awakening, navigating my own realization was closed and shut. And um, we had many adventures together. He allowed me to wander with him during the day. So not much time was spent talking about meditation or spiritual things, although he often had me read the writings of other yogis while he kind of spaced out and worked on other levels. So during those months, first six months of my stay in India, I was with him pretty much much of the day and some of the night, several days a week. And then he sent me to the Theosophical Society, implying that, suggesting that I had some important connection with the Theosophical Society. The Theosophical Society was a five-hour bus ride into Madras or Chennai at that time. And uh, it was a glorious estate of over 300 acres of gardens and fruit orchards and virgin seacoast. I was given a job as a supervisor in the garden department. I had studied some botany. And then on my very first trip back to Tiruvannamalai to see him, he... Uh, actually, some months before I left, 
we had agreed that I was going to write this book and that he would tell me when to begin to write the book. So here, going back to Turban Amalai, we undertook to write the book and spent some days uh, together getting that underway. I thought maybe I would take a little break in the long story of our relationship and talk about a few events, specific events that I really haven't shared with you all previously in our previous meetings or even in Regina's book or in the Punai Tree book, just to give you a little flavor of how bewildering sometimes it was being with him. So I'm going to just bring up a couple of these and then we'll get back to other parts of this story. This is what I call the problem of detritus. Detritus is really a fancy name for trash. It took me some weeks to discover that Yogi Ram Sura Kumar, Swami, as we all called him then, never threw anything away. That his pockets were chock full of all kinds of waste string and cord and torn pieces of fabric and uh, twigs and wrappings and parts of letters, and that anything he touched, he kept. He kept it until he could hand it to somebody, or he could place it somewhere, or he could wear it. He would tie it up in his clothing. And even the newspapers and letters he touched, he had assistants, attendants carry around nearby all the time. And I quote here a passage from the Guru Gita. Wherever he dwells, that very place becomes holy. Whatever he touches becomes holy and is then sanctified with his energy. This was a pro- one of the unique problems of a siddha. Someone who was a walking furnace of of power, and that everything he touched became imbued with his power. Once in the early weeks when I first met him, he used to carry around a little black pot, very cute little ceramic black pot, so-called kamandalu, but it never contained water or uh, beverages. He put trash in it, things he touched in it, but it broke finally. And he wore all of the pieces of that little black pot tied into the corners of his blanket and his shirt for a couple of months until he could find a place or places to deposit those magical objects. In that sense, too, I I often wonder if when he finally found places to put things, if they were placed with intention for his father's work to eventuate 
samterma, meaning to have that object initiate changes in the world, even months or years between the time he placed them to the time they were rediscovered. This I don't know. I never saw him carefully depositing these, but usually he tried to just give them. Anything he touched, he tried to give it away so that someone would be blessed by it. Here's another story that's kind of interesting. This is a story about a mother and a child. During this occasion, we were sitting up near Namashivai Guhai, or cave, and he was having me read for some hours uh, some pages from Krishnamurti, a Krishnamurti book. And a woman, a young woman, maybe 22, 20, in her early 20s, approached and was very upset. Her baby was sick. And she was holding this sick infant in her arms and pleading with Yogi Ram Kumar to heal her infant son. Yogi Ram Kumar would not take the baby from her hands. She pleaded and pleaded, but he would not accept the baby. Finally, he said to her, to place the baby in my arms. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what are you saying? I have no idea what to do with an infant child. I don't know how, I've never healed anyone in my whole life. And he is reassuring her that I will heal the baby. And so I dutifully take the baby and I close my eyes and I pray to him, Yogi Ram Kumar, to please do something to heal this baby. And I opened up my eyes and I explained to Swami that I don't know what to do. I, I, I didn't know what to do. How do you, how can I help? And then I asked him if he would please take the baby and at that point, he took the baby from my hands, and I was so relieved. Mostly, I was preoccupied with thinking, oh, what an utter failure I am. I didn't know what to do. I'm sure I probably made this child sicker <laughs> or something. And uh, I was so relieved that Yogi Ram Kumar took the baby from my hands. I didn't understand that, but years passed and I began to understand that she, the mom, had no bearing, no, no ground to plead for such grace that if he could take measures to heal this baby, it could be done through a different alignment, a different connection, someone else giving him this sick child and not the stranger. 
someone to whom he had a relationship of some depth, I guess. So I never really understood why she had to give the baby to me and I had to give the baby back to him. And then he just held the baby for one minute and handed it back to her and reassured her that the baby would be well. And she was so thrilled, so happy, so overjoyed. And she took the baby and turned with utter confidence and peace and walked away. So there were lots of cases like this where I really could not understand what was happening. Very interesting story. So on this occasion, this might be 1972, a couple of years after I first met him, I had come from Madras and was staying with him in the bazaar for a couple of days. It was past midnight. There was not a soul still walking in the town. We were all by ourselves along a backstreet alley. It was a moonless night, very dark. And um, we had settled on the steps of a closed, boarded-up shop. He was asking me to tell him something about my family. And I was telling him uh, that I was from a pretty average, middle-class family that was pretty torn up with with, uh, divorce and loss of a child and anger and confusion. And I went on as we talked, to talk about my own struggle. And I had never really confided in anyone that I was really struggling with. If I wasn't thinking about God, I was thinking about girls. I was totally, my 22-year-old hormones were all fired up. (laughs) Whenever I wasn't meditating on spiritual things, I was contemplating sexual things. And as I confided this to him, my struggle, my shame about how I was focused so much on sort of impure thoughts. And and it wasn't that I thought there was anything wrong with sex, sexual dalliance, sexual pleasure, sexual passion. It was that I couldn't control my thoughts. I couldn't turn it off. It was like an addiction and I couldn't stop it. And that's what tortured me. And he, I looked up as I was sharing this and he had tears in his eyes and he was holding my hand and we both were silent for a moment when I realized, oh, I had really um, affected him. And we walked across the little alleyway to a shop that was also, they were all boarded up, but this shop had a light bulb, one light bulb in the alley. And we moved across the alley to this one light bulb and stood below that light bulb. And I turned around, he was following me. And I asked him point blank, I said, can you know anything? 
And then I asked, I mean, do you know everything? And he, he was taken aback, kind of pulled back a few inches and said, oh, he knew really what I was asking. And what I was asking after two years of struggle was he knew that I believed for someone to be my guru, that they had to know everything about me, even my deepest secrets. And that that's what I was asking him. Does he know everything about me? Does he know my deepest secrets, even my shame and my hidden parts of myself? What I was really asking him was, was he qualified to be my guru was what I was really asking him. And he then said, yes, Mr. K. In answer to my question, can you know anything? He said, yes, Mr. K. And then I asked again, I said, even things like nuclear physics, which you've never studied, <laughs> which was a silly, silly sort of question. And he, to my astonishment, he said, yes, Mr. K, this beggar can know anything, even nuclear physics. Then he paused for a moment and he said, if it is needed, this beggar can know anything. Everything will be given to this beggar if it is needed to do the father's work. I was floored and I knew that what he was saying was true, that no human body can carry around libraries upon libraries upon libraries of facts and knowledge, power and strategies, but that in the moment, in the present moment that he needed something, uh, it would be given for any work. That really has been with me my whole life to realize that any time help is needed or information is needed, that it would be given. That was one of the great teachings uh, that I received from him. And I have to say also that after this, I gave up. I could not accept him as my guru. He sent me away and I felt abandoned. He sent me away to the Theosophical Society where I really didn't feel connected. I found my way to other teachers. I lost my way. I made some horrible mistakes on my path. Well, I should say that even as years passed, I went back to India a few times to reprint The Godchild. And then in 1993, I went back and he called me to the carpet, so to speak. And he called me out on my disrespect and my thoughtlessness and the harm I had caused others in my mistakes, my spiritual ambitions. 
I didn't understand why he waited all those years because it was had been 20 years since I had made those mistakes, but he told me to go. And he told me I would never come back to India without his grace, without him calling me back. In that moment, uh, I was thinking, I was thinking to myself, he's speaking from some very high authority. He was telling me that it was him who had called me to India, that it was him who had looked after me when I was a boy. It was him who had guided my path on every step. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is, this is way beyond the person that I thought I was speaking to. And I thought to myself, no one can say this. No one can say I'm, that I didn't do those things, that they weren't my will and that I can't come back to India. And then instantly, he just said, you cannot come back to India. You cannot come back to Mother India without my will. He was reading my thoughts word for word, and I swallowed my pride and I left. And I realized I was exiled. For years, I thought of myself as totally failed disciple. So years passed and I got married. I had, um, my wife has children. I continued to practice Advaita Vedanta meditation. I always remembered my beloved Anandamaima. She had been an angel in my life since reading the autobiography of a yogi. And Yogi Ramsar Kumar himself used to say that she was my guru. So I had some guidance. But in 2005, some years after Yogi Ramsar Kumar died, he started coming back. Or rather, I started having dreams of going to India and searching for him. And I would find him and we would spend time in the bazaar talking, just like old days. And then I had dreams of meeting him on the road. And we were both going the same direction <laughs> on the road. And then I began having dreams of him coming to my house. And I would see him approaching me in the front yard. And I would rush to him and fall at his feet and go into total bliss states at his feet and wake up. And then appearing at the back of my house, he's getting closer and I'm falling at his feet and going into bliss states, calling out his name and then waking up. And then finally one night, this was my birthday on July 26, 2008, I was 58. I woke up in this dream and there was a greenish yellow cast, a strange aura in the air something was about to happen. I walked into the living room and looked out the front door and there were two Indian people in the front street with gifts talking about going down the alleyway. 
So I knew something was happening. And I walked to the back of the house to see what was happening back in the alleyway. And as soon as I opened the door, he was sitting at my back door. And as I opened the door and recognized him, I was slammed just like a Mack truck, completely flattened. It was like a gigantic 40-foot tidal wave of energy completely slammed me face first on the ground. And I pleaded with him. I called his name. I inched my way toward him. I could hardly breathe. The force was so powerful. And I reached up to him. He was sitting on a little bench at my back door. And he reached down and took my hand. And in that moment, the world disappeared. The universe disappeared. And I was in a embryonic-like void of black space. And it was very pleasant, kind of floating like an embryo. And then I realized as I looked up that actually I am not floating. I am rocketing at the speed of thought, at the speed of mind, into some heaven worlds above. And I ascend into this heaven space of pure love and grace and light. And there I realize I am in my pure, original, pure self. And that in my pure self is a longing for him. It's part of my light. It's part of my essence that it has existed as long as I have existed. Countless lifetimes that this longing for him, the guru, has propelled me through lifetimes. And in that moment, I realized that he is him, that Yogi Ram Kumar is the guru. And from that moment on, since that moment, there has never been any doubt in my mind. And the reason I bring this up is because in the weeks and two or three months following that awakening to our deeper connection, my inner struggles, my anguish, my addiction, sexual, sexual addictions, my passions, my distractions, everything that I struggled with was taken away. It was lifted, just vanished. What happened then was that I realized that everything that I had done, my diligent, ardent meditations, all of the mistakes and strivings, all had come to nothing. I had never achieved anything. Everything that I had had been given to me was grace to me, was a spiritual gift. And that, (laughs) in fact, I was not capable. I'm no special person like I thought I was as a young man, given 
so many spiritual advantages and guidances and instructions with which I made little, which I put to only selfish use. And I, I accomplished nothing. <laughs> that I am not special and that I, anything that is special about me was given to me by him. And that began what I call my path of praises. Discovering that I don't have a path anymore. This whole idea of achieving liberation to which I was so obsessed, just captivated by the, my fantasies of what it would be to be so enlightened and empowered and wise. <laughs> I, I don't have that capability. I only have this capability of being loved by him and discovering that his gifts to me are unending every day in little ways. And uh, I continue to meet him in dreams and receive his gifts. He's, he comes to me in my house. Sometimes we sit in the living room on the floor, sometimes in my den in this room, uh, my office, and we talk. Sometimes we meet in the ashram or on the mountain. All of those are gifts. I, I cannot, as much as I pray for him to come to me, I, I cannot initiate. <laughs> I have no power to, to control his grace and his love and his gifts to me. I don't suppose any of us do, really. And that all I really can do is be grateful and praise him. One of the things I'm reminded of from my very early days was my disdain for my Christian background, going to church with my mom when I was just a little boy and the old ladies there singing in such falsetto tones and telling stories from the Bible and walking out of church and the old ladies petting my head and saying, isn't he so cute? It used to upset me so much to go to church and praising Jesus in the old style church music. But I realized that that is what I love about my spiritual life now. That in the same way that as a child, those people were singing praises to Jesus. All I have is to anymore is singing praises of him. And uh, some years ago, I think it was 2011, when I was beginning to realize this path of praises, I stumbled across a quote by Lee about the same discovery. And he was way, he got it, of course, instantly. He understood immediately. It took me 20 years or 30 years to figure these things out. But Lee got it. And I see that he got it. And it meant a lot to me where he is quoted as saying, Yogi Ram Kumar often said that he wanted praise 
and only praise directed at him and on all who considered him. Of course, he was also showered with abuse and disapproval, with criticism and blame, all of which he took with elegance, dignity, nobility, and grace, and onward to say he asked for praise, wanted praise, was delighted and tickled with and by praise. And then he goes on to talk about the physics of this relationship of praise. And that point is really important. The physics of praise. I never thought of it in those terms, but when I discovered it, I called it a reversal of my life polarity. That up till then, I had been obsessed with my problems and with my aspirations, however noble, and my failure to achieve even my most pure longings and to struggle. Oh, I have had a lot of health problems, preoccupation with my health. And of course, calling on him for help, (laughs) constantly calling on him for help. But what I realized was that I was being called upon to give up my quest that everything was going to be given and that I was loved and embraced and I was safe. In my life, I am safe. We are all safe in his embrace. And that in turning my energy towards gratitude and praise, I become an empty vessel for a pour, outpouring <laughs> instead of this greedy magnet for more, for more, for more help, for more energy, for more gifts. It completely turns around inside out. And I become an empty vessel of like an angelic song, just like the Renaissance paintings of angels clustered around Jesus in heaven, singing a chorus of hymns to the Lord. I have become one of those, one of those angels uh, singing praise to our Lord. And I can't help it. And it's pure and it's perfect. It's what I'm meant to do spiritually. So I call that the path of praises. And I wrote a small book, a little booklet, two years ago called The Garland, Yogi Ramsur Kumar Garland of Praises. If any of you ever want that, that book, Uh, Of course, it's online. You can see it and hear it sung in Sanskrit on YouTube. But also, I will send you anyone, one or any number of copies. It's my work to share the praises of Yogi Ramsur Kumar. So you're welcome to email me anytime or call me or text me or any way. I'm happy to share that with you. That that little booklet is way more to me than just praise of him. 
it really harkens back to a time when I was sitting with him and he was having me read letters from devotees. Someone, and I have the name of this person and much of the letter in my notes, had written him a letter and addressed him, him Yogi Ram Kumar, in the letter as Namaste, Sri Sri Guruji, Yogi Ram Kumar, and then praises him and praises him and communicates some message and then term, ends the letter with such words of adoration to him, the guru, Yogi Ram Kumar. Yogi Ram Kumar turned to me and he says, he said to me, do you understand that letter? I knew exactly what he was saying. He was pointing out that I could not express at that time, I could not love him. I could not adore him. I could not praise him. And I was so ashamed. In that moment, as he was pointing out the difference between this devotee's relationship to the guru and my relationship to him, I was, I was ashamed and I was angry at Yogi. I was pissed off at Yogi Ramsar Kumar. How dare he point out my deepest wounds, my inability to love. I was not even good at faking it. I felt, oh, how cruel. (laughs) That's not fair. It's true. I, I can't be like him. But after the path of praise awoke in me, I realized then, oh, 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 the time has come. I can write that letter to him. I can write that letter with gushing love and praise and adoration to him. And he deserves, finally, after all these decades, he deserves this outpouring of adoration. The little booklet begins with the verse that reads, Salutations to thee, O yogi immortal, who descends from the effulgent sun, illumines the transcendent sky and brings light into darkness with heart overflowing with adoration for thee. I humbly offer this garland of praises. Then there are other verses. For so many years, I struggled to know who he was. Is he worthy? Is he of sufficient spiritual stature for me to surrender to him, for him to be my guru. I was all the while trying to judge. So now I totally know that he is who he says he is in that small mortal frame. He was or is, he continues to be very near to us all when we think of him or call to him but is a fully present embodiment of the Supreme Being in a special form for a special work, almost unlimited work. You know, I've told you this story before of once having had lunch with him in a little Turvanamalai cafe 
And uh, we left that cafe and wandered through the bazaar and uh, through the marketplace and past the temple tank and past the grand, huge Nandi stone bowl and past the Ganesha shrine and then wandered into the sanctum sanctorum region of the Arunachalashwar temple. And he's, we sat down there outside the innermost sanctum. We were surrounded by thousand-year-old vigrahas, images of the Tamil Shaivite saints and poets. Just a few feet to our left were priests singing immortal hymns to, in this case, it was a goddess shrine. And I was asking him, I said, you know, after your awakening at the hand of Swami Ramdas, that means that you have no more recurring, no, you're, you're off the so-called wheel of samsara. What does that mean that you will never have rebirth? In a very grave, serious voice, he interrupted me and he said, this beggar will always be coming back. And I was taken aback. And I was thinking at the speed of light, I was reviewing all and everything I had read that assured that liberation was the end of rebirth. And I said, but all of the scriptures say, I'm telling him, all of the scriptures say that 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 liberation is the end of rebirth. And then he said to me, he started to laugh out loud. And he said that other people long for the end of rebirth. He said, this beggar doesn't know why, but he only longs to be reborn. This beggar will be coming back a thousand births as long as there is even one person who this beggar can help. He will be coming back. Of course, I was speechless. I had never thought of him in that light. But looking back, and I, I didn't understand it then, and I couldn't love him. My heart was too broken and too closed and too icy cold to appreciate what he was telling me. But now I, I understand. I can only guess that he has already been coming back a thousand lifetimes, that he is always coming back. Like the sage Rishi Narada, who is spoken of throughout the Puranas as a sage who is always being reborn. I think Yogi Ram Surup Kumar is a divine being who comes with divine implements, weapons, and tools, and instruments of grace, much like a many-armed Avalokiteshvara, with a thousand arms, each arrayed with tools and implements to do divine work, that if we can see him in his divine form, we can see his special implements of grace. I believe he is a divine being 
who has already been coming for a thousand years, a thousand births, and that many of you, just like me, we follow him and we serve him. And we have our place in the mission of this divine being. So anymore, I, I feel at peace with the Yogi Ram Surup Kumar I, as I understand him now. Of course, I can only guess. We can only guess. He didn't like to reveal himself. He hid himself for all of the years that I was directly connected with him. But he did, in the end, say that I am the cosmic controller. I am all. He said that from time to time. So here we are. I have pretty much shared much of what I had hoped uh, to share with you. I'm wondering if maybe I've said something or, or failed to say something that maybe uh, you are wanting to ask me, not about me, but about Yogi Ram Surat Kumar. I'd like to say something. Um, Kaylor, I found what you had to say immensely powerful. For me, I, I'm not someone who has followed a devotional path, but I, I actually had tears in my eyes as you were talking because mm. I, I could connect with your connection. Mm -hmm. And um, in fact, I, right now, <laughs> um, I just found it immensely powerful. And I haven't been able to understand how people get on a devotional path, like what is the draw? But I can see the draw is the eternal draw. Yeah. And your connection with that, just, I have no more words. Thank you for sharing it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for expressing those thoughts. He really say, I, I am saved. It's everything that I disdained, everything that I re rejected about Christian faith, I find myself, I am back to the same sentiments. I, he saved me from lifetimes of struggle and self-concern. He has removed my preoccupation, my struggle, the weight of my struggle and my, my shame and my secrets and my wounds and my inability to love, that is gone. He made it clear. <laughs> he made it clear I was never going to get there on my own. I was a Nirguna Bhakta, as Yogi Ram Surakumar himself said, when he went to Papa Ramdas. He was a nirguna bhakta, meaning a worshiper, a devotee of the formless. And Yogi Ram Surup Kumar said he had been a nirguna bhakta and became a saguna bhakta, a devotee of the Lord in form. He, he realized that the guru in Ramdas was his father, was the eternal divine being who loved him 
and he he was crazy in love <laughs> with Papa Ramdas. So and with Mataji as well. And that's what happened to me is this struggle because my heart was so arid and scarred. I couldn't love. You know, there was one dream I had where I met him. This was uh, in the 1980s. It was a long time ago. And uh, I am sitting in Arunachalashwar Temple with Yogi Ramsar Kumar, and we're chatting. For hours, we're chatting. And at one point, he just stopped, and he looked at me, and he smiled and he said, you love this beggar, don't you? And I said, yes, yes, Swami. And then we went on to talk about something else. He showed me some addresses of devotees he wanted me to connect with and so on. And then I woke up and I thought to myself, I don't love him. What do you mean I love him? Am I supposed to love the guru? love. I'm so puzzled. Am I, could I even love him? I was so puzzled. In the dream, I genuinely did. In the dream, right at his side, there was no doubt that I answered completely honestly in my dream state. But in the waking state, when I woke up, I realized I didn't even know I was supposed to love the guru. And I wasn't sure I could, and I was pretty sure I didn't. <laughs> so so um, I struggled with that a long time. And after I was exiled, I went back to Advaita Vedanta and the teachers that I had, Amana Maharshi and Nisargadatta Maharaj's teachings. Uh, but I, I didn't, I never grew. I was so sad that even as I was becoming an older person, I still was plagued with the same struggles. Decades had passed and I had planned, I had hoped, I had prayed for my practice to to relieve me of such a burden. But my practice had not relieved me of any of my burden, my struggle. Everybody has hardships, but I think... Mine were mostly about secrets and shame, wounds, deep wounds. And uh, so in the end, I became a saguna. I am a saguna bhakta. I really am blessed to be uh, able to worship him in his many forms, any forms, any saint, any sage, to me, they're, they're all the same. And as far as that goes, you know, there's another story. I think this was maybe in Regina's book, one of the fabulous treatises on the life of Yogi Ramsar Kumar, maybe Mary Young's. I can't remember where it's from. There's this Indian woman disciple. Yogi Ramsar Kumar is in his dying days, his last days. And she is sitting with him and she is lamenting to him out loud to Yogi Ramsar Kumar that 
all through her adult years, she has known him. She has come to his side and confided her struggles, her hardships, her prayers, her aspirations. And Yogi Ram Kumar has fulfilled her wishes and her longings and taken care of her family when there were illnesses and struggles. And she asks him, she asks Yogi Ram Kumar, after you're gone, what am I to do? I can no longer come and talk to you. And Yogi Ram Kumar turns his head to her and says, talk to the father. She says, what? When this beggar is gone, talk to the father. And that really impressed me. We often think we are not heard when we talk in our prayers or in our thoughts to the divine within or above or all around. We think we are not heard, but he meant for us to know that if we talk to him, he hears us. And um, that is his promise. That is his sacred promise to answer our calls when we are suffering and to hear our longings, our heartfelt feelings and thoughts. Some people are more gifted at hearing and listening and sensing than others, but he has his way to answer uh, no matter who it is, either through dreams or through signs, (laughs) mystic signs and little things that happen. We think of something, something and it appears just when something is needed. The universe speaks to us. It's not like asking him for help is a burden. (laughs) It is his nature out of love. It is his nature to hear and to answer. And answering and giving never diminishes him. Even he can hear a thousand or 10,000 voices at the same time and never be distracted, and never be diminished. I think by loving and giving, the divine being is ever more in love with itself, and in love with its creation, and in love with love, and brighter, in love with its brilliance, and its play, and its creativity, And that's why he loves to be praised. He loves to be loved by his own divine manifestation, which is him (laughs) also, I suppose, in some some mysterious way. Your exile. I, I I don't understand how that came about, like why a guru would exile a person. I just don't get that. (laughs) Yes, I um, deserved it. I made some choices. After him telling me that he could know everything about me or anything, that I still could not surrender, that I didn't have the heart, the open heart to love him, and he loved me so much, it freaked me out. It 
ups, it only exacerbated my struggle, my, my awareness of my fault. And I left him. And I still couldn't love myself. And my heart still was a mess, still frozen. Still frozen is a good word. I had to get lost to be found. I had to, to feel the absence of him. I had to feel that to know what it's like for him to be absent. And then to know the grace of his return. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. Kaylor, the stories are are deeply inspiring, but the mood that is created when you invoke the presence of Yogi Ram Surat Kumar in your own life is shared by us, is what is creating the possibility of deepening commitment to our own practice. It seems like whenever we speak about Yogi Ram Surat Kumar, he's there. Yes. We feel his mood. Yes. It's amazing. He is so near. How can that be? What a treasure this is to be, to have satsang. You know, I, I'm here on this, I, I like to call it my island in the clouds. My home is full of Asian and Indian treasures and his presence. And I see patients here and I remember him and try to spend some time every day uh, on the book I am writing entitled The Guru Never Dies. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of uh, a solo little, what would you call it, rowboat <laughs> on this vast sea of Yogi Ramsar Kumar's uh, all-pervading presence, I like to say. So it's such a, such a treat to, to talk, to share with you all. Not often do I have this treat. You know, the day that I was exiled was the last time I saw him alive. And uh, that was in 1993. On that day, he told the story. Yogi Ram Kumar had actually been in the meditation hall with Ramana Maharshi when a man walked in and sat before the great Maharshi and, and said to Maharshi, what am I to do if one's guru has passed? Is one to seek out another? Or is the present, present guru, the now deceased guru, is the present one enough? And Maharshi hardly hesitated to reply that the guru never dies and that the present one is for all time. And um, on that day, he told that story three times and looked 
right at me. And I kept thinking, why the heck are you telling me this story? I mean, really, well, I was in my 40s. <laughs> I, I wasn't thinking anybody was going to die anytime soon. I didn't know he was talking about himself dying or that he was my guru or that I was going to face the same dilemma one day. I had no idea. And he was reminding me that someday I am going to have to know and understand that the guru never dies. He, t- he said it. He said it. He told that story. Uh, it was two days earlier and then twice on the final day. I r- kept journal notes of all of our meetings. So I have these things word for word and all of the circumstances in my notes. And I often, as I was writing them, wondered, what is it with this story? Why are you telling this story? (laughs) And uh, I understand that for all of us, if we have a heart connection to the guru, whoever it is, that the guru never dies. Mm. 